Our Father in heaven, on this joyous Sunday in the season of Epiphany, we rejoice and celebrate the revelation of your glory in the eyes of the nations through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the incarnation of your wisdom. He came that the world might know you, your grace, your truth, your mercy, your love, your righteousness, and your holiness. He came to fulfill your promises to Abraham, saving Israel and blessing all the families of the earth, a redeemed multitude no man can number. O Father, we ask, give us an epiphany this day, a revelation of your love through your Son as you speak to us and feed us, as you shower us with your gifts of mercy. Even as the wise men came bearing gifts, we bring our gifts to you today. Even as the water was transformed into wine, we ask you to move us from one degree of glory to another. Even as you revealed your love to your son in his baptism, speak words of love and assurance to us today that we may know that we are your children and anointed members of your royal priesthood. And empower us this day by the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that we might go forth from here equipped for service, that we might open the eyes of the blind all around us, that they too may have an epiphany and by the working of Your Spirit may come to see the glory of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from Proverbs, the third chapter, the first twelve verses. Here again, the Word of God. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, even as Your Son Jesus Christ and His incarnate life grew in wisdom, we pray that we might grow in wisdom as well. That You would fill us with His wisdom, with the wisdom that comes from Your Word. Help us to live out Your truth in our everyday lives to bring You honor to bring You glory in the world, to show the world the cruciform life of Jesus, the love of Jesus. This we pray in His name. Amen. The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's all about wisdom. It is, I think, rather widely agreed upon that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom can be defined best as something like this. Wisdom is the art or skill 
of living in harmony with God's design for the creation and God's design for human life. Because Proverbs is all about wisdom, wisdom being communicated by a father to his son, really you could say wisdom is all about character formation. Uh, Proverbs is about character. Now, unfortunately, in our day, we don't really talk about character very much. Instead, we like to talk about personality. And certainly, personality types are important, but they're not nearly as important as character types. And in Proverbs, you see two basic character types. Wise character is contrasted with foolish character. What you see is the wise man knows how to live his everyday life to the glory of God. He knows how to serve God in the practicalities of life, in the details of his life. Wisdom has to do with glorifying God in your daily routine, in the midst of daily life. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is utterly practical. It has to do with living faithfully as God's covenant people in our everyday routines. And that's why Proverbs covers the wide range of topics that it does. It covers virtually everything. You read through the book of Proverbs and you're surprised to not find an exhortation there to change your oil and rotate your tires every few thousand miles. It's just that practical and down to earth. Most of the time when the book, when the New Testament quotes from the book of Proverbs, The New Testament writers use Proverbs to teach on some aspect of godly living, we might say. How to live the Christian life in a very practical way. So, for example, Proverbs uh, 25 is quoted in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. How to deal with enemies, with those who despise us. 1 Peter chapter 2 quotes from Proverbs 22. Fear God and honor the king. How to live out our civic responsibilities. And again and again, we see this when the New Testament quotes from the book of Proverbs, it uses the book of Proverbs to exhort us in godly living in one dimension of our lives or another. Some people have wondered, with so much emphasis on practical living in the book of Proverbs, does this book teach us anything about the way of salvation? Does it point us to the way of redemption in Christ? Does Proverbs give us the gospel? If there's a gospel in Proverbs, what is it? What is the gospel according to Proverbs? We know that ultimately Proverbs must be about Jesus because in Luke 24, the risen Christ carries on a Bible study with His shocked disciples. And He goes through the whole of the Old Testament, Moses and and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, to show how they all pointed ahead to Him. And so if the whole Old Testament is about Jesus and Proverbs is a part of that Old Testament, then certainly Proverbs must be about Jesus as well. And indeed, we really saw this last week. How is Proverbs about Jesus? Well, certainly one aspect of this is in revealing wisdom to us. Proverbs is really revealing to us Christ's character and Christ's mind. To have the mind of Proverbs is to have the mind of Christ. Because Christ Himself is the fulfillment of Proverbs. He lives out this proverbial wisdom. And in fact, we saw last week, there's really a whole chapter in the book of Proverbs that's, I think you could say, really explicitly about Jesus. Proverbs 8 is really ultimately about Christ's wisdom. It shows us that Christ is wisdom. And wisdom is Christ. Christ is the eternal wisdom of God. Proverbs 8 is this poem about wisdom and it shows that God 
created with his wisdom and through his wisdom. And ultimately, that wisdom is a person. That wisdom is his son. Proverbs doesn't just personify wisdom as a kind of literary device. Proverbs shows us wisdom is a person. It's the person of Christ. To know Christ is to have wisdom. To have wisdom is to know Christ. Wisdom flows out of our relationship with Jesus. As we fear Christ and trust Christ, we grow in wisdom. We become like Christ, who is wisdom incarnate. But it has been pointed out that the New Testament speaks of wisdom in a rather different kind of way, it would seem at first glance, than the book of Proverbs does. There are some who think that the New Testament speaks of a different kind of wisdom than the wisdom you find in the book of Proverbs. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read from it this morning. Paul says there that Christ is God's wisdom. We've talked about that. We've seen that in Proverbs. No surprise there. But specifically, Paul goes on to say that Christ's cross is the revelation of God's wisdom. That the cross shows us the wisdom of God. Paul says the cross is foolishness to unbelievers, but to those who are being saved, it is the very wisdom of God and the power of God. Paul shows us there in 1 Corinthians 1, the Gospel of the cross confronts the wisdom of the world with a different kind of wisdom, a divine wisdom the world knows nothing about, a a surprising wisdom that was hid from the foundation of the world in some sense, but has now been revealed. But it's a wisdom that the world regards as foolishness. The wisdom of the cross appears as foolishness to unbelievers. This is true no matter how smart or educated unbelievers become. Listen to Richard Dawkins. Dawkins is one of those celebrated new atheists that we hear so much about in the media today. Uh, Dawkins has done a lot of writing on atheism. And in an interview, he had this to say when asked about the whole concept of the Christian gospel, the Son of God dying on a cross. He said this, The idea that the only way we can be redeemed from sin is through the death of Jesus, that's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge and power, couldn't think of a better way to forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in His alter ego as His Son and have Himself hideously tortured and executed so that He could forgive. Dawkins hears the Christian story of the Gospel, the story of the cross, and he doesn't see wisdom there. He sees foolishness. To him, it seems like an absurd fairy tale. You know, you mean to tell me, you Christians, you mean to tell me that some Jewish man who was executed by being nailed to a tree by the Romans some 2,000 years ago, that's your God? And that's how we're saved? Just do that? The whole notion is just absurd. It's crazy. It's foolish. By the world's standards, the cross will never look like wisdom. It will never look like power. It looks weak. It it looks foolish. It looks absurd. It doesn't make any sense. But what Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that God did it this way for a reason. He did it this way precisely so that humans in their pride would have to be humbled in order to enter into this way of salvation. God designed this way of salvation in order to humble us. He designed the way of salvation in such a way that it would be an affront to the wisdom of the wise and to the intellect 
of the intelligent. He designed the way of salvation precisely to look like foolishness in order to humble. In the world's eyes, the cross represents death, condemnation, and failure. It's foolish. But God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, for in truth the cross brings life, righteousness, and victory. It is the wisdom of God. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it's the foolishness of God, but the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The cross reveals God's wisdom because through this way of salvation, He confronts men in their pride. Through this way of salvation, Christ's death maintains God's justice while also allowing God to justify sinners. God is righteous and God can declare sinners righteous through this cross. That's why it's God's wisdom on display. But if that's so, here's the question. We've looked at Proverbs. We've glanced at 1 Corinthians. How do you put them together? If this is so, how does the wisdom of the cross relate to the wisdom of Proverbs? Does the wisdom of the cross have anything to do with the wisdom of Proverbs? Proverbs has to do with living in accord with the patterns of God's creation and providence. In Proverbs, wisdom is the skill of living well. And it's often associated with blessing. Again and again, Proverbs says if you live this way, if you live wisely, you'll find success. If you live wisely, Proverbs seems to suggest all will go well with you. You will live long and prosper because you're going with the grain of God's creation. The cross reveals what seems to be a very different kind of wisdom. After all, Jesus Himself lived a life of perfect righteousness, a life of perfect wisdom, we could say. And yet He didn't find the success of the Proverbs. He found a cross. He was nailed to a tree. He did everything right, but then everything went wrong. He didn't live long and prosper. He suffered and died. And so what gives? How do you put this together? Proverbs is all about being shrewd and clever and navigating the world's challenges. It's all about mastery leading to victory. The cross, the cross's wisdom seems to be all about challenging the world instead of navigating the world. It seems to be more about surrender than mastery. Is there any way to bring these two wisdoms together? Well, yes, I think there is. And I think this passage we've read this morning in Proverbs 3 is one of many places in the book of Proverbs where you find that actually proverbial wisdom, when you look at it closely and really examine it, it can really be seen as cruciform wisdom. The the wisdom of Proverbs really is cross-shaped. It's cruciform wisdom. We're going to look at this whole passage. I'm going to run you through this whole passage here. But just for starters, look at verse 5. Verse 5, the father says to his son, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is a call for faith that would be fully at home in a passage like 1 Corinthians 1 or any other passage in the New Testament where the Gospel is being presented and, and there's a call to faith. Here you have in the book of Proverbs a call for comprehensive trust in God. It means trusting the Lord for salvation. That's central and everything else radiates out from that. But it's a comprehensive trust in the Lord. Trusting the Lord for salvation, for provision, for health, for guidance. We're to trust the Lord for everything we could possibly need. 
The life of wisdom is a life of faith. It's a life of utter dependence. It's a life of casting ourselves upon the mercy of God. Throwing ourselves upon His mercy. Solomon says, lean not on your own understanding. In other words, to become wise, you have to die to your own understanding. Your own understanding has to die. It has to be crucified. Now this here, I think, in Proverbs 3, this is foolishness in the eyes of the world. This is the exact opposite of the way the world looks at wisdom. The exact opposite of the way people like Richard Dawkins define wisdom. In the world's eyes, the whole reason for becoming wise is so that you can lean on your own understanding. For Richard Dawkins, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. And that's the pathway to true knowledge and wisdom. Lean on your own understanding. Not so in Proverbs. In Proverbs, the path to wisdom is the path of self-denial. Or to put it in New Testament terms, it's the pathway of the cross. Lean not on your own understanding. means put your own understanding and your own wisdom to death. This call here to not lean on your own understanding, but to give yourself up to God, it's actually a lot like what we've seen Jesus talk about in Mark chapter 8. Think back on that passage about discipleship in Mark 8. Jesus tells His disciples to take up their crosses and follow Him, and then He immediately goes on to explain what that means. By saying, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Well, here in light of Proverbs, we can add to that. Whoever loses his own understanding for my sake will save understanding. Whoever loses his own wisdom for my sake will find true wisdom. See, Proverbs, just like 1 Corinthians, shows us there is wisdom in laying down your life. There is wisdom in humbling yourself, in dying to yourself. Proverbs, like 1 Corinthians, shows us the path to wisdom is through death. Death to self. Death to worldly wisdom. Worldly ways of understanding. Death to self-made wisdom. The wisdom of Proverbs is a wisdom that comes only to those who are willing to die. It's a wisdom that comes only to those who are willing to die to themselves. In other words, what Proverbs shows us is that to the extent that you will not die, you are still a fool. In those areas of life where you will not die to yourself and your own desires and your own wisdom, in those areas of life, you're still playing the fool. See, God created the world in wisdom. It should not surprise us that He redeemed the world in wisdom as well. And those are not two different Wisdoms, but one wisdom. From the very beginning, we were created not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust God to reveal His wisdom to us and to give His wisdom to us. Where did Adam and Eve go wrong in the beginning? Adam and his wife fell as soon as they started to lean on their own understanding and judge for themselves the meaning and effect of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, a tree of wisdom that God had said, do not eat. Not yet. 
Not yet. I'll give it to you in due time, but not yet. Wait. Be patient. Don't lean on your own understanding and judge for yourself about the tree. Rest in my wisdom. Look to me for guidance. Die to yourself so that you might truly live. That's been the way from the very beginning. Royal wisdom comes to the humble. And the ultimate revelation of God's royal wisdom happens at the cross. But the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom revealed in the cross, is not only a wisdom that accomplishes our salvation, it's also wisdom to live by. It's as though the cross, at the cross, Jesus not only accomplishes our salvation, but He provides a mold. And as you pour your life into that mold of the cross, you become wise. And yes, it might feel like death. It is death. Death to self. Death to the old you. But as you pour yourself into that mold of the cross, you find true wisdom. And therefore, true life. See, Proverbs is training in wisdom. But it's not a different kind of discipleship program than the one Jesus outlined when He called on His followers to take up their crosses. In fact, what I would say is Proverbs spells out for us what it means to take up your cross in all these different areas of life. Proverbs really is giving us a preview of the kind of life that Jesus will live when He arrives in history and the kind of life that we as His followers are called to live. Proverbs reveals to us the kind of life that flows out of renouncing our own wisdom so that we can lean on God's wisdom. It's the kind of wisdom you get when you die to yourself so that you can live for God. Now what we have in the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3 is one of several speeches that the kingly father here gives to his princely son describing the life of wisdom. It's a sketch of how the wise man lives. A, a, a kind of rough sketch, an outline of how the wise man lives. How he, in living wisely, dies to himself. And you're going to see every single one of these exhortations, in order to follow these commands given here, it requires us to die. Every proverb in the whole book of Proverbs, every proverb is a little model of reality. A little piece of insight. A little window onto the way things really are. It's a little model of reality that shows us the way God designed the universe to work. And that's really what we have here. There are several other speeches in Proverbs that do the same kind of thing. Maybe covering a different set of topics. But I want us to look at this one because I think it's a great big picture summary of what true wisdom really is. So, verse 1. The Father says, My son, do not forget My law, but let your heart keep My commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. So here the Father promises peace. He promises shalom to His Son. Shalom is promised to the wise. Now here you see, there's, there's a very clear structure. It's here in this Proverb. It's here in every single one of the Proverbs in this particular passage, these 12 verses. Every one of the Proverbs in this section, the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3, has, has two parts to it. There's a command part, and then that command is followed by a promised reward. So that structure is, is in every single one of these Proverbs. You've got six commands, 
followed by six incentives to obey those commands. Six promises, six rewards that show the result of obedience. What will happen if you obey? So here, if the, if the son keeps his father's law, peace or shalom will be the result. That is to say, if the son will refuse to be a law unto himself, and if he will submit to a law outside of himself, or we could put it this way, if he will die to himself in order to obey his father, an outside authority, then peace will follow. The son here is warned to not forget his father's instruction. Forgetting what was commanded is never an excuse for disobedience. If I tell one of my kids, go clean your room, and then I come back in two hours to see whether or not they've done it, and the child says, oh, I forgot. I don't say, oh, well, then that's okay. You forgot, of course. No wonder your room's not cleaned up. No, forgetting actually compounds the sin. It just adds to the sin of disobedience. It's another sin in addition to the sin of disobedience that needs to be confessed and repented of. So then the question for us is, how do you remember? The key to remembering, of course, is to pay attention, to listen, to meditate, even to memorize. That's what the Father wants His Son to do here, to meditate on His words, to impress them upon His heart. And of course, the Father reminds the Son here in verse 1 that true obedience is not just a matter of superficial outward conformity to the law, but it comes from the heart. Wisdom is not a matter of technique. It's a matter of character. It flows out of your heart. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4 goes on to say, out of the heart flow your decisions and your choices and therefore your character. So it's got to be from the heart. Obedience from the heart. Verse 3. Moving to the next Proverbs. Verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's the command part. Then we have the result, the promise. And so you shall find favor with God and man. Now that finding favor with God and man part, that ought to sound familiar. That's actually echoed in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, which we read this morning. Describes Jesus as a young man fulfilling the book of Proverbs, growing in wisdom as he grows in stature, and as he matures, finding favor with God and man. Again, Jesus is the one who fulfills the Proverbs, who embodies the wisdom of the Proverbs. Jesus bound mercy and truth around His neck. And when He bound mercy and truth around His neck, where did they lead Him? Ultimately, they led Him to the cross. They led Him to sacrifice Himself for others. Mercy and truth. What are we talking about here? What are mercy and truth? These terms could also be translated as loving kindness and faithfulness. Sometimes the question is asked of this verse, is this talking about the Son clinging to the loving kindness and faithfulness of God? Since those two terms, those two words are put together so often in the Old Testament as a way of describing God's character. Or is this talking about the Son manifesting loving kindness and faithfulness in His own way of life? Of course, ultimately, you can't have one without the other. The Son's going to manifest loving kindness and faithfulness in his life. He's got to cling to the loving kindness and faithfulness of God. If he wants to see loving kindness and faithfulness reproduced in his own character, he has to cling to those attributes of God first and foremost. 
I think the emphasis here on in this verse is on the way the son lives. That he lives in a way that reflects God's own character. His love and his faithfulness reflect God's own love and faithfulness. So he is loving and faithful in his relationships. He's loving. He's sacrificial. He's respectful. He's kind. He's a servant. And he's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's loyal. He's dependable. His word is his bond. He fulfills his obligations and his responsibility. Move on to the next proverb. Verses 5 and 6. We've already touched on, but there's more here to say. This is a father exhorting his son to trust the Lord. Fathers must be exhorting their sons to trust. To trust the Lord. To live by faith. To lean on the Lord. To be able to say, I trust the Lord and the Lord hasn't failed me yet. I'm leaning not on my own understanding. I'm leaning hard on the Lord and His wisdom. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, it goes on to say. This means in every area of life, you must acknowledge the Lord's supremacy. Acknowledging the Lord in your family, in your work, in your finances, in your sexuality, in your friend choices, in your entertainment choices. What does it mean to acknowledge the Lord in all these areas of life? It means to acknowledge Him as the Lord. To recognize His authority, His supremacy. And it means, once again, to do this, you've got to die. You've got to die to yourself and your desire to define yourself and to, and to make your own choices, to live life your own way. You have to die to your inbuilt desire for autonomy and submit yourself to the Lord. You've got to humble yourself before the Lord and His Word. The book of Proverbs shows us how to acknowledge the Lord in a whole host of areas of life, in virtually every area of life. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, the Son is told. All your ways. Why? Because the Lord alone has authority over all your ways. The Lord alone has authority over every area of your life. And He alone has wisdom about every area of your life. God matters to everything. And you can't say that about anything else. Let me give you an example of this. Does money matter? Oh, sure, money matters. It matters in some areas of life. In fact, Proverbs has a lot to say about the usefulness of money, how it can be a blessing. But Proverbs also shows us the limits of money's reach, the limits of money's power. That it can't provide real security. It can't buy lasting happiness. It's not as valuable as wisdom. Proverbs 3 goes on to say that in the rest of the chapter. We have a tendency to put our comfort, our health, our pleasure, our status, at the center of life. We want to make our understanding, our reason, our feelings, our ultimate authority. No, the Father says here. The wise man teaches us to acknowledge the Lord as Lord in all your ways. The truth is, money has very little to do with most areas of life. Very little to do with happiness or what's most important in life. If you go to the doctor next week and find that you have a terminal form of cancer, all the money in the world is not going to do you much good. The cancer cells don't care how much money you have. They don't care whether you're rich or poor. 
And your money is not going to give you security. You can't pay those cancer cells off so that they'll go attack somebody else instead. You're going to die and your money is helpless. It cannot rescue you. If you have a rebellious child, your money can't fix that. Money can't change hearts. You can't purchase repentance with cash. See, if you acknowledge money in all your ways, if you make money your Lord, your life is going to be a disaster. And so the Father says to the Son, don't acknowledge money in all your ways. Acknowledge the Lord. Make Him supreme in your life. Verse 6 talks about our ways or our paths. These are really important words in the book of Proverbs. Traveling this path of trusting the Lord is the way to wisdom. Becoming wise is not something that can happen instantaneous. You don't just flip a switch and instantaneously get wisdom. Finding wisdom is a pathway. It's a journey. It's a destination you have to move towards over time. Becoming wise is not like stepping through a doorway and now you've entered wisdom. It's like journeying along a path. And one day you will arrive at this destination of wisdom. It's a lifelong journey. And that's what Proverbs is all about. Launching the sun on this journey towards wisdom. And as your faith matures, as you learn more and more to live by faith, you grow in wisdom. But we only arrive at wisdom after pursuing it over the course of our lives. We live in an instant society. We want what we want and we want it now. We are an impatient people. Uh, I remember reading one time that uh, the the average uh, item that is purchased at a convenience store the the average food item purchased at a convenience store is consumed within 60 seconds. So you go to the convenience store, you know, you you buy your Twinkies or whatever, and within 60 seconds on average, they're gone. We want what we want, and we want it now. That's the kind of people we are. We've got instant coffee. We've got microwaves. That's just how we like to live our lives. But wisdom isn't like that. Growing in wisdom is more like cultivating a garden. It takes time. It must be a lifelong pursuit. Your goal in life should be to grow in wisdom continually. So, you know, if you're 20 years old right now, when you're 25, you can look back and say, I have grown in wisdom. I'm not fully arrived. I'm not where I want to be, but I know that I've grown. If you're 50, When you're 60, you want to be able to look back and say, I have grown in wisdom. I'm still not where I hope to be, but I'm wiser now than I was. You know, someday, you're going to look back at your present day self, yourself as you are on January 18th, 2015. You're going to look back at your present self, who you are right this very moment, and you're going to say, I can't believe how immature and foolish I was. I can't believe how immature and foolish I was back then. What that means is right now, you are immature and foolish. Your present self is foolish. And you know how I know that? Your future self will say so. And so what does that mean? It means we must all commit ourselves to continuing to walk down this path of trusting the Lord and acknowledging Him as Lord in everything we do. 
This is how we increase in wisdom. Don't, don't center your life around anything other than the Lord Himself. Don't make money or popularity or particular kind of relationship, whether it's a spousal relationship or a parent-child relationship, don't put any of those things at the center of your life. Yes, those things radiate out from the center, but the Lord Himself must be at the center of your life. You must die to your own wisdom and die to your own way. And when you die, to yourself and your own wisdom and your own understanding, you will find that the Lord gives you true wisdom and puts you on the way to true life. Verses 7 and 8, the next proverb, we see more of the same. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. This is reinforcing what we've already seen. Humble yourself. Die to yourself. Crucify your pride. To consider yourself wise in your own eyes is the essence of pride. Uh, Proverbs 26.12 gets at this. It echoes this in Proverbs 3. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. See, if you're not wise in your own eyes, then you're in a position to receive wisdom from others. You're going to seek wisdom where you know it can be found. You're humble and so you're ready to be taught. You're ready to receive correction and instruction. Let me just give you one example of many that we could take here. Let's say you're facing some big decision in life and you know that you don't have the resources of wisdom to make a good decision on your own and so what do you do? You decide to ask the elders of the church to meet with you, to give you counsel, and to pray with you. Okay, so you've asked the elders for a meeting. What do you think the elders of the church do when somebody asks for a meeting like that? Do the elders of the church say, this person is so dumb, they can't even make their own decision. They can't even figure out what to do on their own. I guess we'll have pity on them and meet with them. No, that's not what the elders do. The elders say, wow, here is a person who is on the pathway to wisdom. They're not wise in their own eyes. They're humble enough to know they need wisdom from others. You don't have to go just to the elders to get wisdom. You can get counsel from, from, from others who aren't church officers, certainly. But I would say, too, in this church, as in so many other churches, the elders are an underutilized resource. And I would encourage you to seek wisdom and a multitude of counselors every time you face a big decision, including the counsel of your elders, the multitude of elders you have in the church. That's what they're there for. To provide you with wisdom that you lack. Verses 9 and 10. Next proverb. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase, and your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. This proverb has to do with wealth. It has to do with stewardship and with generosity and actually with tithing. The reference here to first fruits is specifically a reference to the tithe, the practice of giving 10% of your increase to the Lord's house. Tithing is a feature of the wise man's life. Why is that? Well, it's because tithing requires disciplined management of your financial resources. It's a feature or a mark of the wise man's life because in order to tithe, you have to die to yourself 
and, and all the ways you'd want to honor yourself with that portion of your resources. You have to die to yourself. You've got to crucify your own desires. And you've got to reprioritize and restructure how you spend your money in order to put God right at the top, to put God first. It's honoring God with the first fruits. The first fruits of your increase. And that requires you to rethink and rework the way you do finances. You can't just give to God whatever's left at the end of the month, whatever the leftovers are. It's the first fruits that are to be brought into the Lord's house. And there's a promise here. The, the Lord, as He does elsewhere in Scripture, promises to bless those who give. He promises to reward them. And I think the logic here is something like this. It's better to have 90% of your money plus God's blessing than it is to have 100% of your money minus God's blessing. You see that? 90% is greater than 100%. Okay, that may look like bad math. That may look foolish in the eyes of the world. That may not look like wisdom in the world's eyes. But 90% with God's blessing is greater than 100% without Tithing has another interesting byproduct. You know, quite frankly, sometimes we're not as interested in the church's work in the world as we ought to be in the church's ministries and the church's doctrine and her worship and her missionaries. Well, here's a way to get yourself interested. Tithe. Give money and you will find yourself a whole lot more interested in what the church is doing, what God is doing through the church in the world. Let me give you an analogy. If you don't have money in the stock market, you're probably not all that interested in whether the market goes up or down. If you don't have any money in the stock market, you probably never hit on that, you know, that stock, you know, app on your smartphone to see how the market's doing. You really don't care. You don't have, you don't have any treasure there, you don't have any money there. What difference does it make? But then you put some of your own hard-earned money into the stock market. And all of a sudden, you get a lot more interested in what the market is doing. Now, why is that? Well, Jesus gives us the principle in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you've got a little piece of your treasure in the stock market, then your heart follows it. And your heart gets interested. Okay? Maybe you're not as interested in global missions as you ought to be. You're just not as interested as you ought to be in the spread of the Gospel to all the nations of the earth. Well, look, let me tell you. Give money to mission work and you will find yourself suddenly quite interested. Because now you're invested. Now you've got a stake in it. We think our money is going to follow our interests. And in a way it does. But it also works the other way around. Your interest follows your money. Your heart follows your treasure. Invest treasure in God's work in the world. And your heart will get very interested in what God is doing in the world, spreading the Gospel through His church. But again, to do this, to honor the Lord with your possessions, to honor the Lord with your money, you have to die to self. You have to die to your own desires and all the ways you'd want to honor yourself with that portion that you give to the Lord's work. You see that? Again, it's cruciform wisdom here. Finally, verses 11 and 12. 
my son, and here we know we're at the end because we're back to my son, these references to my son, this address, these addresses to my son at the beginning and end show us that this is a self-contained section. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. This is so important. So important. Up to this point, it could be possible to think that Proverbs is teaching a kind of health and wealth gospel, a kind of prosperity gospel. And some have twisted the book of Proverbs to teach that. Here you see, that can't be so. See, if Proverbs taught a, a health and wealth and prosperity gospel, you might see this about you know, giving money, and you might say, well, I'm going to give, but only so I can get even more. I want my vats to overflow and my barns to be full, so I'll give, but only because I know the Lord's going to make me even richer in return. If that's your way of thinking, then that would mean you're using God to get what you love instead of loving God and using what He gives. That's not the way Proverbs works. This verse here shows us that. It, 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 it corrects that misperception. This verse shows us God sends His children both earthly blessing and earthly sorrow. Both come from the hand of the Lord. When the Lord brings hard things into our lives, we should interpret those trials in light of passages like this. We should interpret those trials as the Lord's fatherly discipline. And we should know that behind the pain stands the loving purpose of our Heavenly Father. Behind the pain stands the purpose of our Father. And it's a loving purpose. It's a good purpose. His fatherly discipline is training you in wisdom. Now certainly when you're young, and, and you, know, you kids understand this, when you're young, your parents are the primary way that the Lord's discipline comes into your life. When your parents discipline you, that's not just parental discipline, that's also divine discipline. It's the Lord disciplining you through your parents. When we grow up and we're not under our parents' authority anymore, God's fatherly discipline, God's fatherly correction comes into our lives in other ways. But it is always there. And it is always there because we are sons of God and He is a loving Father who's not going to just let us go our own way. And so the way He keeps us on the way of wisdom and the path of life is through His discipline. And yes, that discipline hurts. It feels like death. When Proverbs talks about disciplining a child with a rod, it says your child's going to sound like he's dying, but he's not. He's going to live. In fact, life comes through that death-like discipline. And so it is in our lives, even after we've outgrown our parents' rod, the Lord's discipline feels like it's going to kill us. Discipline feels like death. And those trials the Lord puts you through, in a way, they are putting you to death. They're crosses you're called to bear. But in bearing those crosses and learning how to die more and more to yourself, what do you find? You find true wisdom. You find true life. You find true power. That's what it's all about. How do you find wisdom according to the book of Proverbs the same way you find life and wisdom according to the whole rest of the New Testament? It's through the cross. Through Christ's cross as He dies for us to redeem us, but also by conforming your life to the pattern of His cross. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that You would help us to learn to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust You to cast ourselves totally upon Your grace and mercy. Father, we can say, anytime we have trusted You, You have not failed us. The blood of Jesus has never failed us yet. May we continue to trust in You. May we lean more and more into You. May we lean more and more on Your wisdom. May we learn to rest in Your wisdom. The wisdom You've ultimately revealed in the cross of Your Son. We pray that as we do so, that You would make our paths straight. That You would redeem our past mistakes and turn them to our good. Use them for our good. And that You would give us guidance for the future. That we might continue in this way. A way of life a way that leads us to Christ-like maturity. We pray this in His name. Amen.